This past Tuesday, March Super Tuesday, the largest of the primary elections that are going to be happening this year. This upcoming August, on August 26, 2020, will mark the 100-year anniversary of the final ratification of the 19th Amendment, which granted women the right to vote. As we enter March, Women's History Month, both of these seem like good examples of why we can really discuss women in cemeteries. Considering not just the history of American cemeteries as unique places of burial and egalitarianism, but also looking at the larger women's movement and how some of the key figures have been memorialized. I'm Liz Clappen, and this is Tomb of the View. So, I am always in favor of timely episodes. Uh, I can hear Ashley silently screaming at me. I don't think that we always need to cover topics just when there is some sort of commemorative thing. Um, I honestly didn't intend to do a Women's History Month episode, but as I was sitting there, it's I'm recording this on Wednesday, so the day after Super Tuesday, watching CNN and listening to John King give commentary and looking sort of at the cross-section of people who were voting in the Democratic primary, I got to thinking about a lot of things. And especially with the 100th anniversary of the final ratification of the 19th Amendment coming up, I honestly still think it's a really relevant topic. I know there are some controversial opinions out there about a lot of what I'm going to talk about today, but in the world of cemeteries, honestly, Women's rights is an interesting question. To start off our discussion, I I really think that over the past 24 episodes, we've looked at a lot of examples, actually, of really significant changes that occur. Now, I'm not going to say that in many ways American cemeteries don't follow traditional values, because they certainly do. Often, particularly in the colonial period, a woman is listed under her husband's name. But that is part of the social convention of the time in more than one way. It's not just showing a property or ownership or her marital relation. It's also a symbol of status because a married woman in society carried a certain status, particularly sometimes in terms of her husband's position in society and things like that. As we've noted before, particularly in the colonial period, burials in churchyards and in small community burial grounds are not necessarily planned. So a husband and wife would not necessarily be buried together. So this is also an important development because it helps to establish familial relationships when people are not necessarily buried in the same plot which I know may seem counterintuitive because obviously you do see a continuation of this in the 19th century. But at that point, keep in mind, we've talked very extensively about the significance of burial grounds to the colonial era. And obviously we've talked mostly about this in New England where you have this very Puritan base and you have this very Calvinist type theology. 
But this also carries through in other places, particularly if you look at some of the early colonial graveyards in places like Charleston, South Carolina, Savannah, Georgia, places like that, you see very similar trends. And often because they are coastal cities, you see a lot of the same stone carvers. They tend to travel around and you see very similar death's head and winged hourglasses, a lot of the same imagery that you would see in New England graveyards. So I'm sort of making a blanket statement here. But I think that putting that type of information is not just a reflection of the societal values, but also is valuable because it gives an indication of status and worth, not just necessarily your marital status as, oh, she was a married woman, but also showing that you are part of, say, a prominent family because you might not be buried with other members of your family. And odds are you probably weren't. Now, do women have any particular rights beyond that? Well, if you remember back when we talked about the early Catholic burial ground at St. Mary's in Maryland, I think that's another perfect example because you can see a lot of status based on, you know, the coffin hardware and what people were buried wearing and There's a lot of status associated with the individual, and this is going to be a big trend in American cemeteries. As we move into the 19th century, which is where we're going to be spending most of our time today, I don't think that you can overemphasize the fact that women were changing their status. Now, in terms of rights of women... Arguably, women actually had more rights under the colonial government than they did after the ratification of the Constitution. So, for example, there were several colonies that actually allowed women in restricted and very tightly constrained ways the right to vote. However, in the United States, by 1807, virtually all rights to vote have been removed from women across the board, every state. And a lot of these states, they only, when they were colonies, they only allowed women to vote under certain restrictions, whether it would have been if they owned property or whatever it might be. But by 1807, that is completely gone. And as we know, we will not have full universal suffrage in the United States until 1920. So women's rights change quite a bit. And Any student of American history knows that there is not a lot of thought given to women's rights in any capacity during the drafting of the Constitution. So what role do women play in society at this point? If you recall our discussions of the rural cemetery movement, I think it's really important because you'll recall that one of the big things that we talked about was sort of the changing American ideology and how after America had become its own country, there were a couple of things going on. First of all, they start to move away from that very traditional straight-laced Puritan point of view. And part of this is what we called the Second Great Awakening. So if you recall the Second Great Awakening, we talked about how this was a spiritual and religious revival, which transformed the American mindset in many, many ways. Going back to the first Great Awakening, remember that had a lot to do with Methodism. The second Great Awakening, though, 
it's sort of a universal upheaval. It's removing religion from that very strict, straight-laced, narrow Calvinist point of view and going into a much more liberal, open-minded view of all aspects of society. And one of the things that it did was it really challenged the idea of women's traditional roles. Now, at this point in history, and this has been going on for a couple centuries now, Traditionally, religion was used as a powerful tool to control women. There was seen to be a very strict outline of how women were supposed to behave, and this was seen as being biblical. It was written, and so there were constraints placed on women as a result of this. It's a very Christian idea, because if you go back to traditional Judaism and Hebrew scripture, there's a lot more wiggle room And historically, I think the Jews as a people, I think you can make the argument that while they're obviously a patriarchal society, not certainly as strict as what we start to get going into, say, the 18th century. Now, the Second Great Awakening, as you recall, had a big part in the rural cemetery movement because they start to see religion in a different way where death is no longer seen as this real doom and gloom call to mortality, call to repent for your sins, reminder, this memento mori, it's no longer seen as that. They start to move towards this idea of a good and beautiful death, where death is a return to this natural state, where when we die, we are returning to nature, we are becoming one with nature. You can see how there are parallel ideas here. Remember, this was part of a larger social movement that America was going through as it struggled to find its identity. Much of that identity would be found in two things, the beauty of the natural environment and social reform. Now, with women, social reform is going to be the name of the game. As we start to talk about some of these early women who are really, really significant Keep in mind that doing good Christian charitable works was seen as one of the paramount things that women could do. As a woman, of course, your primary role was to be a wife and mother. But beyond that, you were supposed to be good, to be a force for good in the world. So the women that we'll talk about today, their origins all come from the fact that this is one of the few encouraged outlets that they have to express themselves. So what issues are they going to care about? Well, the primary issue for most of these women is going to start with abolition. The abolition of slavery is going to be a rallying point. Now, these women come at it from a couple of different perspectives. Some of them come at it from a religious perspective, primarily in the form of Quakerism. So Quakerism, the Society of Friends, are the one core group from the very founding of the United States who oppose slavery. If you watch any type of period drama set in the 18th century, any type of period drama about the Revolutionary War or the early origins of America, if you see someone standing up and opposing slavery, odds are they are a Quaker. 
It's one of the main tenets that if you look at the founding of Pennsylvania, one of the reasons that Pennsylvania was such an attractive colony to so many people was because of this, because of this very open-mindedness that went with the Quaker agenda, for lack of a better word. Other women come at it from the perspective of the fact that they just see it as being illogical and incompatible with the spirit of American democracy. Both of these, I think, are equally valuable. You have to look at this from the fact that these women come out of a group that slowly are chipping away at the status quo. So you have early folks like the Grimke sisters are a perfect example. Um, Sarah Moore and Angelina Emily Grimke, two sisters who are actually born in the South. They're born near Charleston, South Carolina. They become some of the biggest advocates for abolition. But along with that, they turn abolition into a larger picture where they are looking at the overall fabric of society. And they are starting to pick apart the things that they find to be lacking. This goes along with some of the other early people. Uh, Lydia Maria Child is a perfect example. In the 1830s, she is urging women to write their own wills for the distribution of their property. This is a really radical idea. So women at this time, they cannot own property. They cannot divorce their husbands. They do not have custody of their children. When a woman marries, all of that contractually, all of those rights transfer from her father to her husband. And so this is a really radical idea, giving women the empowerment to distribute their own property after their death. Whether it's making sure that their money goes to their children so that their children can support themselves or say to a charity or to a church organization, whatever it might be. This is a really radical idea. And not surprisingly, um, Lydia Marie Child also is an ardent abolitionist. She is an early advocate for Native American rights. These women start off with small ideas that start to blossom into something more. Now, all of this, if you are paying attention to dates, like I said, it's starting to happen in the early 19th century. 1830s. We all know in the cemetery movement, 1831 is the year. That is the year that Mount Auburn is founded. So this whole push for social movements, cemetery reform, prison reform, sewage, water, all of these sanitation reforms that are seen as being really progressive and really embodiments of the American spirit, they're all happening at the same time. And the abolition movement is going to catch on fire in a big way as we go through the 1830s into the 1840s and start barreling towards the Civil War. Now, even those with the roughest idea of American history know that all of this rights for women is going to come to a head in a very, very important meeting that's going to happen in Upper State New York. And of course, what I'm talking about is I'm talking about Seneca Falls. So what's going to happen at Seneca Falls is going to be essentially the biggest step in the movement. Now, keep in mind when I say that, 
it's a big step because it is the first public and very open meeting. I wouldn't say it's the be-all and the end-all. So Seneca Falls will happen on July 19th and 20th, 1848. Happens in the Wesleyan Chapel in Seneca Falls, New York. Now Wesleyan, if you're not up on your denominations, that is a Methodist chapel. Now Seneca Falls obviously could be an episode in and of itself. It's a pretty... It is the seminal event. It's the spark that lights the fire of the women's movement. The first day was restricted just to women. The second day, they opened it up to everyone. And at the end, they make a declaration of the rights and sentiments of women that is akin to the Declaration of Independence. And at the end of it, they have nearly 100 people sign. You have 68 women, 32 men who all sign this, and they are making a public statement to the New York legislature that they believe women deserve these rights. Now, let's back up a little bit, because something important also happens that year. And I want to talk about that first, because that's going to kind of lead us into the women that I want to talk about and what makes them and their cemetery so special. This is the passing of something called the Married Women's Property Act, and it happens not too long before Seneca Falls. It actually is passed on April 7th, 1848, so just a couple months before. And this is the first step where women, for the first time by the legislature in New York, same place that Seneca Falls will occur, they are given property rights to their own property. So if they own land, if they have a job, prior to this, if you were a woman and you had a job, your wages were not your own. They were given to your husband. So it gives you certain rights. And it's a start. Um... This is a very interesting thing, and I didn't quite realize this. It makes a lot of sense now that I've done the research, but what you're going to have is you're going to have a small burst of energy in the women's movement. Unfortunately, the Married Women's Property Act, much of it will later be repealed. What happens is is you have sort of a, a firestorm that happens in the 1840s, 1850s, and then the Civil War, as wars often do, brings everything to a screeching halt because there are just bigger concerns. The same way that the only thing that really got the United States out of the Great Depression was World War II, wars can have the opposite effect where suddenly there is a common need to band together and that becomes larger than the interest of individual groups. And obviously where this is closely linked to the abolition movement, we're going to talk about that because... Unfortunately, the women's movement has become a little bit controversially tied up in this whole issue of gender rights versus race rights. This is something that I had heard about and I hadn't really done a lot of research on, but I think it does need to be addressed, unfortunately. So we have Seneca Falls. Now, Seneca Falls is also really important, not just because they make this Declaration of Rights and Sentiments, but more specifically... There is one right and sentiment. It is the last thing that is announced, which is demanded. It's demanded by Elizabeth Cady Stanton. And the very last thing that she asks for is she says that there should be universal suffrage, that women should be afforded the right to vote. And before that, she restates 
the famous lines that say that all men and women are granted certain inalienable rights. And this is bold. This is a bold statement because obviously we know that in the original it said all men. So this is a bold statement. And then she goes on. And this is something that there is a lot of disagreement about. Many of the organizers of this particular conference, particularly Lucretia Mott, which I'll talk about her in a little bit, uh, did not agree with this. They basically said, you know, you're going too far. It's all well and good to demand certain rights, but there is the edge and then there is the abyss. But they make this demand. So let's start by going back and talk a little bit about Elizabeth Cady Stanton because she's the first one I really want to talk about. Elizabeth Cady Stanton is born November 12th, 1815. And she is... In many ways, the perfect Victorian-era society woman. She is born into a wealthy family in New York. And her father is pretty prominent. Her father is a man named Daniel Cady. Uh, He served a term in Congress. uh, But most of his life, he is actually a circuit judge. And so he is very well educated. Her mother comes from a long, long line of... Americans uh, going all the way back. Her her family name was Livingston, and her ancestor Livingston apparently was one of the ones who caught the man who was aiding and abetting Benedict Arnold during the Revolutionary War. So they have a long history in the United States. And she's an interesting character, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, because she is clearly very intelligent from the beginning. They talk a lot about how as a child she reads as many of her father's law books as she can, how she loves to do research. And one of the things that she does when she reads these law books is she takes a pencil and she circles the laws and the restrictions that she sees as being unfair to women. Now, Elizabeth Cady Stanton is also fascinating because She is surprisingly well-educated for a woman of her day, probably because of her family's wealth and prominence. So she goes to the Johnstown Academy. Johnstown is the city where she grew up. And she goes all the way through her education, studies higher-level mathematics. She is particularly gifted in the classics. Uh, She takes the second prize in Greek in her year. But she is extremely frustrated because in her co-educational academy, she is not permitted to go on to college like her male colleagues are. So instead, she goes to what at that time is called the Troy Female Seminary. And these are progressive for their time. They are not the same as what we would call a college or university, but they're also not quite the frilly finishing schools that we tend to think about women attending. And Troy Female Seminary is probably better known by its current name, which is the Emma Willard School. And Emma Willard is a woman who, in and of herself, is a very interesting character in female history in the United States. She had started the Female Seminary. Um, Here, we see a continuation of this same sort of progressive education, looking at the importance of educating women, and looking at diversification. Now... What happens to Elizabeth Cady Stanton is that in this education, she starts to turn her back on almost all of the core tenets of what women are supposed to believe in society at this time. 
the first thing that she turns her back on in a huge way is religion. Um, And she does this because, and I think it's best to quote her here because she says it very clearly, quote, all religions on the face of the earth degrade her, meaning women. And so long as woman accepts the position that they assign her, her emancipation is impossible. Going back to what we talked about with this whole idea that there is a biblical command to women to be wives, to be mothers. She argued that, quote, together we must pass through every stage of theological experience, from the uncertain ground of superstition and speculation to the solid foundation of science and reason. Now, I know what you're thinking. She really wasn't a typical Victorian woman, and in many senses she wasn't. However, she was married. She was married to Henry Brewer Stanton, who, if you are familiar with his name, you might be familiar with him because he was a lawyer. And he was a very prominent lawyer, orator, and he was also co-founder of the Republican Party. Now, keep in mind, when we say Republican Party, we are talking about the party of Lincoln. The Republican Party, as it existed in the mid-19th century, is far closer to a liberal point of view today. So keep in mind, you have to sort of swap out your party names um so obviously he is again a huge proponent of abolition very progressive so you can see how she found a husband who in many ways was an ideal partner for her and she and henry would have seven children together elizabeth katie stanton is interesting because she was in many ways tethered to her home she was in many ways tethered to her husband they had a 47 year marriage um both good and bad but he was ill for much of their marriage. And one of the reasons that she eventually ended up in Seneca Falls and lived in smaller towns was because his health was poor and they kind of had to retire to the country. But she's very progressive um, in her outlook on the world. She believed that women should have complete command over their sexual relationships, that they should have the choice of whether or not they wanted to bear children, that they should have a say in how their children were raised. And she advocates for a lot of really interesting things, Um, not just the obvious ones that you can think of, like divorce and women's rights, but she's also a huge proponent of homeopathic medication and treating with natural ingredients, uh, very against the crap patent medicines of her day. She's a huge advocate for outdoor activity for children. This is unusual in the Victorian era where people are supposed to be closeted away inside. She's always urging her children to go outside and play. Um, She also focuses on higher education for all of them, both her boys and girls, obviously. The other big thing, and this is important to mention because it's going to be another one of the key things that ties into the women's movement is that she is a huge proponent of temperance. You cannot talk about women's movements in America without talking about the temperance movement, which obviously means the abolition of alcohol. Now, you know by now, I do love me some alcohol. I am not a teetotaler in any way. This is one where you really need to go back and you need to look at the social context of it. In many ways, they saw alcohol as being one of the core issues that suppressed women. 
women who had husbands who were alcoholics were subjected to beatings, were subjected to poverty because often men spent their money on alcohol, didn't support their families. It took away their control of their home. It affected them in so many ways. And one of the reasons that they believed that so many women were subjugated was because alcohol was the key to this subjugation. So temperance is going to be a huge part of this. And if you've ever watched anything about prohibition, uh, whether it's a documentary or television shows like Boardwalk Empire, this temperance movement is going to continue well into the 20th century. And I don't think that there is any doubt that the passage of the 19th Amendment in 1920 is very closely tied with the passage of the Volstead Act, which enacts prohibition, that there's definitely a connection there as they barrel towards ratification. So, we have a woman who is now a wife and mother who is going to be engaging with other women based on her social do-gooding in the world. She is against slavery, she is against alcohol, and she's trying to advocate for women's rights. Elizabeth Cady Stanton, in the women's movement, she is the pen. She is the rhetoric master. She is the one putting out the ideas, but because of her lifestyle, unfortunately, she cannot go out there and do it all herself. Now, in 1851, she is going to have a very important meeting, and that is going to be with Susan B. Anthony. Susan B. Anthony, another very interesting character, uh, she is a Quaker. So she comes from this religious background that is also very anti-slavery. She is slightly younger than Elizabeth Cady Stanton. She's about five years younger than her. She is born uh, February 15th, 1820. And she comes from a very different background. She comes from a very working class background. And a lot of her choices are going to be dictated by her family in the same way that a lot of Elizabeth Cady Stanton's were. Um, her father is working class. And her family struggles quite a bit. Um, so, for example... In the Panic of 1837, she is, at this point, you know, 17 years old, she has to go to work as a teacher to help support her family, who essentially lose everything in this economic depression. Her brothers and sisters can't really stay at home. They all go off to sort of make their own way in the world. For example, her brother Merritt will actually fight with John Brown um, as part of this massive abolition movement uh, and probably one of the most infamous incidents. And even if you read her writings, she talks a lot about the fact that she didn't come to the movement for women in the same way. It was not an ideological thing. It was a practical one where she was a woman who had to support herself. Susan B. Anthony would never marry. She didn't have a wealthy family to support her. She had to work just to keep her family fed. And she says, quote, I wasn't ready to vote. I didn't want to vote, but I did want equal pay for equal work. However, we can certainly see that in her tradition, she's definitely 
kind of shirking tradition. If you are familiar at all with the Society of Friends, Quakers are very simple people. They use plain speech, which to most people sounds like very old-fashioned English, uh, using the. They wear plain clothes, not looking to draw attention to themselves. All of this kind of goes away. When she starts to teach, she drops her plain speech. She becomes part of sort of this more intellectual academic world. She starts to wear more fashionable clothes and even things that are a little risque. Um, Susan B. Anthony is noteworthy because she wore what was called a bloomer dress, which was a gown that only went to the knee. And you could see a woman's bloomers underneath. I think it's great Uh, that she does this but I also think it's very telling about Victorian society that she stops wearing them after about a year because as much as she sees them as being very practical and progressive and you can do much more and there's no reason not to what she starts to find is that she is criticized more for what she wears than for what she says and I think it's really interesting that this is something that's still going on today that often women are criticized for what they wear as though it matters as much as the contents of their mind or their speeches or their political platform. And it can go both ways. Women can be condemned equally for being dowdy as they can for being glamorous. I remember reading a very interesting interview with Hillary Clinton where she talked about how she had always dressed a certain way. And if you see pictures of Hillary Clinton when she's young, when she's at Wellesley College and things like that, she she definitely, she she was a, a nerdy girl, and a lot of people probably would have called her dowdy. I think Hillary Clinton's actually a quite striking woman, so I don't think she's dowdy, but I can also see how people would have said that. She talked about, throughout her marriage to Bill and the early years of his political campaign, she dressed the way that she was most comfortable. And when he decided to run for president, they sent a stylist to her and she had always worn headbands and she thought headbands were very practical because they kept her hair out of her face and it was never a mess and it was just easy. But the stylist told her no, that that was not glamorous enough for a woman who was going to be first lady. And obviously throughout her own political campaign, when she was running for president, there was a lot of criticism over her wearing clothes that were too expensive and too extravagant. I don't mean to go too into depth. Obviously, Hillary Clinton is the best well-known example. And I just make a point to say that not a lot has changed in the last 150 years. So you have Susan B. Anthony... You have Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and they come together after Seneca Falls, and they start a widespread campaign. And they are going to push in every way that they know how to get women the right to vote. Susan B. Anthony at one point said that Elizabeth Cady Stanton forged the thunderbolts and she threw them. And you can see a lot of photographs of the two of them together working in tandem. Because Elizabeth Cady Stanton was often homebound with her children, she and Susan B. Anthony would meet. They would discuss important issues. 
They would write speeches. They would write different platforms for legal changes. But often Susan B. Anthony was the public face of it. And interestingly enough, what's going to happen is that not too long after Seneca Falls, actually before she even meets Elizabeth Cady Stanton in 1849, she will leave teaching forever. And she will, from that point on, support herself for the rest of her life purely based on speeches. She commits herself to social activism and she becomes very popular on the Lyceum circuit. So these are essentially being paid to speak. If you recall back uh, with our Straight Out of Concord episode, we talked about how Ralph Waldo Emerson essentially supported himself in the exact same way. And I think that you can draw a ton of parallels to the transcendentalist movement because there's certainly a lot of shared values. And if you look at some of these women, they're coming from very similar liberal thinking backgrounds. Definitely a lot that you can compare here. So these two women for essentially the next half century are going to forge this ahead. Now, you're probably already aware that unfortunately neither of them lives to see the passage of the 19th Amendment. So they're actually going to die relatively close to one another. Elizabeth Cady Stanton will die on October 26th. 1902, and then Susan B. Anthony will die four years later, March 13th, 1906. They both live to 86 years old. Um, They both die of heart failure. And that's honestly, for that time, a very good long life, particularly for a woman, particularly if you consider the fact that Elizabeth Cady Stanton had seven children. So she survives seven uh, seven sessions of childbirth, Obviously, Susan B. Anthony is never married, never has children. In that time period, what do they accomplish? So there's a couple of things that happen. Elizabeth Cady Stanton I'm going to take first because both she and Susan B. Anthony are going to be very, very controversial. What's going to happen is that there is actually going to be a big split within the women's movement following the Civil War. So as I already said, The women's movement gets off track a little bit because the focus in the 1860s is going to be on the war. However, following the war, the biggest issue during Reconstruction is going to be the passage of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment, which is going to grant rights. Well, first it's going to end slavery. Then it's going to grant rights to freed slaves. This is where things get tricky. We're going to see a division. And unfortunately, I don't have enough time to talk about everyone who is significant to the entire suffragette movement. I'm going to focus on the key players. I think it's definitely a topic that we can come back to. I think it would be very interesting to talk about the next generation. But what's going to happen is that you're going to have a division over the idea of universal suffrage. And both Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony are going to insist on nothing less than universal suffrage. They are going to argue that granting black men, free black men, the right to vote 
before everyone can vote, everyone meaning also white women and women of color, is not enough. And so they come out and they start to publicly oppose this. There are plenty of videos that you can watch online where people call both Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony horrifically racist for this. I can honestly say that I think that they were so invested in this particular vision that they used whatever platform that they could to bring attention to it. Now, I don't claim to be an expert on this. I don't claim that they are perfect. That's the argument that I can come up with. And I know that there are a lot of people who have done a lot of research that say otherwise. However, this causes essentially a schism between people who want to support the 14th and 15th Amendment and people who do not. So Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony are going to become the heads of the National Women's Suffrage Association, whereas the other camp, led by folks like Lucy Stone, are going to become the American Women's Suffrage Association. Down the line, they will eventually reunite in like the 1890s, and they will kind of overcome this. But there is this sort of divide, particularly over this, and this is one of the reasons that, unfortunately, these women have become at least in the modern era, labeled as being somewhat racist. I think that they had tunnel vision, honestly. I think that they were so focused on trying to accomplish this that they saw this as an opportunity to draw awareness, but people were not ready to listen. Susan B. Anthony says, quote, No advanced step has been taken by women that is so bitterly contested as that of speaking in public. For nothing which they have attempted, not even to secure suffrage, have they been so abused, so condemned, or so antagonized. I think that women were attempting to use the 14th and 15th Amendment as their soapbox, and maybe that wasn't the right moment to do it. All right, that's enough of the controversy, just to give you an idea. So... They use this platform. Obviously, we know it does not happen. The 14th and 15th Amendment do pass. We will, again, struggle to go forward in decades. So what are they doing out there? Well, Susan B. Anthony is probably the most noteworthy example because she very famously attempts to vote. Now, it's important to note that before the 19th Amendment, there are a number of states who do grant suffrage in different capacities. It mainly starts in the West and then very slowly moves East. Some of them allow women to vote on county issues, on certain issues of property taxes, things like that. Some allow universal suffrage. But what happens is is that in Rochester, New York, where Susan B. Anthony lives, on November 5th, 1872, she does attempt to vote and she is arrested. And will eventually be put on trial. The United States government versus Susan B. Anthony. She is convicted and ordered to pay a $100 fine, which if you think that she paid that $100 fine, come on. No. She swore right there in court that she would never pay it, and she never did. As I said, 
moving onward. So Elizabeth Cady Stanton will die in 1902. Her husband at that point predeceases her by almost 20 years. So he actually already has a plot. Um, I have been to Elizabeth Cady Stanton's grave. She is buried in Woodlawn Cemetery in the Bronx. I know I have discussed Woodlawn on a number of occasions. I think, honestly, if you were to visit one American cemetery, this might be the one. It is not as old or as culturally significant as Mount Auburn. It does not have as close of a tie to American history as, say, Arlington does. But in terms of sheer excess and sheer grandeur and just joy for a cemetery lover, there is nothing like Woodlawn in the Bronx. It's, relatively speaking, a later addition. Um, It started in 1863, so it starts during the Civil War. And at that time, it's actually started in what's southern Westchester County. Eventually, it will be annexed to New York, uh, and obviously today, it's right in the heart of the Bronx. Um, The annexation happens in the 1870s. Uh, I think it becomes the Bronx sometime in the 1890s. It is massive. It is over 400 acres um, and has something to the tune of 300,000 burials. It has more mausoleums than any other cemetery in the United States, And these mausoleums are not for the faint of heart. They are enormous and beautiful and designed by McKim Mead and White, some of the most famous architects who designed anywhere in the United States, are designing mausoleums that are bigger than the house I live in. It also is a collection of New York society on a level that I often wonder why Greenwood in Brooklyn, other than the fact that it's one of the early rural cemeteries, gets as much credit because there are certainly more big names who are buried at Woodlawn than anywhere else. And so when Elizabeth Cady Stanton's husband dies, he is buried there. His monument is not spectacular. It's very typical Victorian era. It's a dark gray granite, um nothing crazy I will definitely post a picture of it um as I said I have been there and it's it's very typical of that transitional not quite memorial park yet we're talking that lawn park era remember we talked about Spring Grove in Cincinnati so it's on that level where you have a big central family monument surrounded by smaller identical markers for the different family members the Stanton plot is exactly like that Um, and I also think it's a little sad because when you look at this monument, you will see at the top, obviously he dies first, Elizabeth Cady Stanton's husband is memorialized. And even though it's not a really grand monument, it says Henry Brewster Stanton, philanthropist, journalist, lawyer, senator, And then below that, it says Elizabeth Cady Stanton. That's it. Nothing. Nothing else. Just her name. You can see, obviously, that it is, to a certain degree, a place of pilgrimage. There was a flag there when I visited. And you could see that some people had left some stones on her grave and whatnot. But 
this is a perfect example of exactly what we talked about where her grave is defined by her husband. He is definitely listed as the bigger name. Now, you could also make the argument that when he died, having been a U.S. senator, having been a co-founder of the Republican Party, he was more significant than she was, and that only throughout history, as we look back on women's history now, can we realize how significant she is. But I wish it said something other than her name. Susan B. Anthony, on the other hand, is also buried in a non-secretarian cemetery. And that's an important point to make. I think that both of them are buried in these progressive cemeteries that are part of this cultural movement that are, you know, laid out on the new model for how American cemeteries exist. She's buried uh, in Mount Hope Cemetery in Rochester, New York. One thing it's worth mentioning The other person who was really a powerful voice at Seneca Falls, who was really well known, uh, and who spoke on that second day when it was opened up to men, was Frederick Douglass. So Frederick Douglass lived in Rochester. Of course, he's born in Maryland in slavery. He is an escaped slave. He works his way north, and he very famously ran his abolitionist newspaper called the North Star out of Rochester. So he was president at Seneca Falls. He certainly knew Susan B. Anthony. He is also buried at Mount Hope Cemetery. So they are the two sort of noteworthy burials there. Mount Hope, unfortunately, I have not visited, but it is very high on my list of places that I do want to visit. Um, I checked. I consulted um, Lauren Rhodes' 199 Cemeteries to See Before You Die. It did make the list, whereas Woodlawn in the Bronx did not, which I think is interesting because... Well, I already told you my opinion of Woodlawn. I I think everyone should see Woodlawn at least once in their life. But not my book. Mount Hope is one of the originals, or what I like to think of as the originals. Uh, The rural cemeteries that are 100% based on Mount Auburn that are founded in its image within that first decade. So it is founded in 1838, And Rochester is prime for this because Rochester is one of the first boom towns in the United States. Um, Prompted by the Industrial Revolution, it has a massive population boom. And like most of the cities that tend to have these rural cemeteries pop up, in a two-year span between 1832 and 1834, there was a cholera epidemic in the city. You have over 100 deaths from cholera in a population of 10,000. Their cemetery is overtaxed, and so they decide to build a new cemetery a mile and a half south of town, which will eventually grow to 196 acres. Um, And the interesting thing is, so Rochester, New York today has a population of about 210,000. There are 350,000 burials at Mount Hope. So there are more dead folks in Rochester than there are living, which I think is great. This is one of those really remarkable cemeteries in terms of using the landscape and really fitting into that rural cemetery model. Apparently, it had been traditionally used by Native Americans throughout their history. Uh, It's the high ground. It's sort of a craggy, rocky, really roughly hewn landscape that was carved out by glaciers. 
almost every piece of literature that you read about talks about the glaciers. Um, I think it's great. They actually used to have an observation tower called the Fandango Tower on top of the tallest hill in the cemetery. It was a wooden observation tower uh, that you could sort of climb up and get this panoramic view. Remember, of course, these early rural cemeteries are huge tourist attractions. This is an interesting cemetery for a couple of reasons. Uh, it exhibits a lot of the things that we talked about in our first three episodes, our History of American Cemeteries. The idea of organizations having plots here. So it's actually adjacent to the University of Rochester. They have a large plot there, very similar to the Grove Street Burial Ground in New Haven, where we talked about Yale having a plot. It's also a huge military cemetery. There are 5,000 Union graves there. Really remarkable architecture. There is an 1874 gatehouse. It's like a second empire. Really beautiful with a mansard roof. Just absolutely lovely. Um, There's an earlier 1862 Gothic Revival chapel and early crematorium. Which it's cool because you could clearly see that one end is the chapel and then there's the huge smokestack from the crematorium. um, Which I guess it's still available for weddings now. Um, I don't know if you want to get married that close to a crematorium, but you do you, folks. There are quite a few burials still happening here. It's still active. Um, I read this. I don't know if it's true, but there's apparently five to 600 burials still going on every year, which is a very active cemetery by any standards. Uh, but it's also huge. I mean, I think they have the land that they can continue to spread out. So... Obviously, we said Frederick Douglass is buried here, and also Susan B. Anthony. Now, the great thing that I found out, and this is a little unusual. I expect it in a small town. One of the weirdest cemeteries I ever visited was the cemetery in Holcomb, Kansas. Which, if you are not familiar with Holcomb, Kansas, it is best known as being the setting of the kind of OG true crime novel In Cold Blood, which was written by Truman Capote about a series of very violent murders of a farm family in 1959. When I drove cross-country, I drove through Holcomb, Kansas. We drove past the house from In Cold Blood, uh, and I went to the cemetery, and the cemetery is interesting because obviously not just the family that was murdered, um, the Clutter family, is there, but also so many of the people that were involved in the trial, you know, the sheriff, the local police chief, because it's a small town in Kansas is tiny. The other thing that Holcomb, Kansas is known for is that the largest chicken slaughterhouse in the world is there. Uh, It smells terrible, Uh, but that's right outside of town. But in a small town like that, odds are everyone's going to be buried in the same cemetery because there's only one. What I think is interesting is that not only is Susan B. Anthony buried at Mount Hope Cemetery in Rochester, New York, which is admittedly a much larger town. Um, But also Alicia Keeney, who is the U.S. Marshal that arrested her for voting. Her lawyer, Henry Selden, is buried there. Beverly Jones, who is the registrar who registered her to vote and later went to prison for it, is buried there. It has a delightfully small town feel where all of these people who were involved in this very controversial dust up 
all are buried in not just the same cemetery, but in the same sort of general area. She has a very simple memorial. To me, it is a very traditional catalog style marker. It is a headstone, like a round top headstone made of marble with raised letters. Now, perhaps the most interesting thing about this is that Susan B. Anthony is not the only famous woman to touch this. Um, so a woman named Sally James Farnham, who you might not be familiar with, but you really should be, uh, is not buried at Mount Hope, but has a very significant piece of sculpture called the Defenders of the Flag, which is their Civil War Memorial. Remember I said there are 5,000 Union soldiers buried there. And, uh, Sally James Farnham is born, um, November 26, 1869. She dies April 28th, 1943. She is actually buried on Long Island at All Saints Episcopal Cemetery in Great Neck. But she is really significant because she is sort of one of the first widespread female sculptors in the United States. She sculpts the Defenders of the Flag in 1908, and she actually becomes famous specifically for war memorials and cemetery memorials. And she will go on to do some really significant stuff, the statue of Simone Bolivar in New York City, things that you have definitely seen. And I will post some pictures of her with her statuary because I think it's fascinating. But I think it's great that she also happened to design sort of the centerpiece of this cemetery where we have this real pioneer of women's rights. We also have one of the premier female sculptors of the 19th and 20th century. So I think it's cool that they kind of have that link there. Um, it is listed on the National Register. It was actually only listed on the National Register last year, which I thought was interesting. Uh, Woodlawn, by comparison, is actually a national landmark. It has national significance, and it was listed in 2011. Um... One last weird story, because I can't resist, about Mount Hope. And I think I'm fascinated because I haven't been there and I really want to. But let's be honest, when am I just going to be passing through Rochester? Never, probably. Alicia G. Marshall. Yes, there's more than one person named Alicia buried in the cemetery. Who was a Civil War general. In 2000, his grave was desecrated. And his bones were scattered all around, and his skull is still missing. And I had to tell this story because after the George Washington episode, and then the attempted kidnapping of Honest Abe, can we stop with the stealing of the bodies already? Really? This is in the year 2000. This is 20 years ago. You know, I mean, at least the other stories were good ones. I can't really see what the purpose would be in the year 2000 of digging up a Civil War general, sprinkling his bones around and stealing his head. Uh, maybe if it was some sort of, you know, underground militia movement. I don't know how active that is in the greater Rochester area. It just struck me as such a strange thing to do. And, you know, after the attempted theft of both George Washington and Abe Lincoln, I figured one more weird missing skull story couldn't go amiss. Last thoughts on the Susan B. Anthony issue. One of the reasons that I wanted to do this 
was because somebody had recently asked me if I had seen the news stories about this. Four years ago, when Hillary Clinton was running for president, we started to see a trend where what women were doing was, and men, not just women, but men as well, were actually making the pilgrimage to Mount Hope Cemetery in Rochester. And they were taking their I Voted stickers and they were putting them on Susan B. Anthony's grave. And it gets to the point where the grave is completely covered in them. And part of me, the preservationist in me, does cringe a little bit this and say, really, that adhesive is not good for the marble. That marble is already not in great shape. If you look at it, it's too clean. They've already done something to it. But part of me, that's also the preservationist, really rejoices at this because so often the graves are overlooked. I think it's great that, I mean, her house still stands. There are plenty of other places that are associated with the life of Susan B. Anthony that they could have chosen to go to. But they choose to rally at her grave. And so my hope is, and the cemetery was very good about this. They actually kept the gates open longer. They're normally open dawn till dusk, but they kept the gates open late so that people could access it. And her grave is right near the kind of entrance to the cemetery, so this wasn't too much of a trial. But I really do love this. And one of the sort of angry videos I watched online was about how you would be better served if you put your I voted sticker on the grave of someone else. But you know what? Susan B. Anthony, for good or for ill, whether you agree with everything that she did or not, you know, we'll go on. She celebrated her 80th birthday at the White House with William McKinley. She is the first woman to be depicted on U.S. currency with the Susan B. Anthony dollar in 1979. At the Capitol building, she, along with Lucretia Mott, which unfortunately I'm looking at how long we're running. I don't think I'm going to have time to talk about Lucretia tonight. Her, along with Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Lucretia Ma, are, are celebrated in the rotunda of the Capitol for their role in women's suffrage. Sorry. Go ahead. Put your I Voted sticker there. These are two grave sites that I think are very interesting. And they're ones that, if you wanted to make a pilgrimage to New York, you could easily accomplish them. And obviously, there's a long drive between the Bronx and Rochester, but... I think that they're both very worth seeing. Woodlawn, you could easily make a day of. It sounds like, from what I've read, that Mount Hope Cemetery is the same way. So maybe for the 100th anniversary of the passing of the 19th Amendment, that would be a fun pilgrimage to make. Obviously, Super Tuesday is over, so... Many of you probably live in states where voting already occurred. I know, particularly, I know I have a lot of listeners up in Massachusetts. Uh, but I also have a ton of listeners here in Georgia. Here in Georgia, we early voting is open. Obviously, primary day is still three, three weeks away. I would encourage you to get out there and vote. Um, a lot of people suffered quite a good deal so that we could vote. We're lucky to live in a place where we can exercise our democratic rights. So that's my soapbox for the week. So I will encourage you to do that. If you are interested 
in learning more about this. And I don't normally plug things like this, but it is Women's History Month. And fortunately, if you are interested and if you live in the New York area, it's something that you want to do. Both cemeteries actually have activities for Women's History Month. So if you're interested in learning more about not just Elizabeth Cady Stanton, but all of the significant women, which there are many buried at Woodlawn, uh, Woodlawn is actually doing Women's History Month trolley tour at the end of the month on March 29th, uh, 2 to 4 p.m. Uh, there is a fee for it. It's $20 for members, $25 for non-members. If you are interested, that is certainly... They do a good job there. Uh, having been there, they, they do put on a really impressive show. Um, if you are in Rochester a little bit sooner... Um, they actually, there, unfortunately, there was already a whole series on the trial of Susan B. Anthony back in January, which is past. But they have a whole lecture th- series called Morning in the Morning. Um, and it's held at the public library in the Kusler Cox Auditorium, which is at 115 South Avenue. Um, it's called the Rundle Building in Rochester. And... On March 14th, on Saturday, March 14th, at 10.30 in the morning from 10.30 to noon, they are going to have a presentation called The Women Who Voted with Susan B. Anthony. So if you are interested in learning more about these and you happen to be in that area, you live in sort of the greater New York area, just wanted to apprise you of them. Um, I can say that both Woodlawn and um, the Friends of Mount Hope have some pretty good things. Mount Hope is the first website for cemetery I've ever seen that actually maps out their white bronze markers. For those of you who might want to go back and see more white bronze, um, there's only 12 in the whole cemetery, which I thought was interesting when they have that many, 350,000 burials. They only have 12 white bronze markers, so they must prize them highly. Um, In addition, here in Atlanta, coming up over the next couple of weeks, I'm going to be highlighting more of this. But um, we are coming into the month of March is really exciting in Atlanta because we have a whole series of free history events called Phoenix Flies. And depending on what you are interested in, it's obviously not just cemeteries. It's all types of institutions. They have different types of talks. They have different tours. A lot of them at places that you cannot get into other times of year. If you are a history nerd... This is definitely the moment you've been waiting for. So if you are interested, uh, Phoenix Flies, you can get the full listing of events. Uh, But I'm just going to highlight the cemetery ones, obviously, because that's the name of the game. Um, The Clay Cemetery, which is run by the Kirkwood Neighborhood Association, they're going to be open for guided tours on March 14th, 15th. 21st and 22nd they're running those tours at noon and two the historic oakland foundation where ashley works they are going to be open friday march 20th from 5 30 to 6 45 and then saturday march 21st from 11 to 12 15 it's a preservation focused walk so if you are interested in the preservation side of cemeteries i would highly recommend that Historic Southview, which that is the historic African-American cemetery here in 
Atlanta. Uh, they're going to have just one day only on March 28th from 4 to 6. They're going to be doing a live history presentation, which looks fantastic. Uh, it's called Up From Slavery. It's a guided walking tour with a living history presentation. Westview Cemetery, which... We're going to be focusing on Westview a little bit later this month. Um, they're doing a number of tours, and they're bus tours. Uh, if you know anything about Westview Cemetery, it's enormous. Um, so Thursday through Saturday, March 12th, 13th, and 14th, 26th, 27th, 28th, at 10 and 2. They do recommend reservations. Again, all of this information is available at the Atlanta Preservation Center's website. So they have a full listing if you click on Phoenix Flies, it'll be able to give you all of the information. And then lastly, the Utoy Cemetery Association, which if you remember, Ashley told you a little bit about Utoy. It is actually the oldest cemetery in Atlanta. Um, and they're going to be doing a tour called um, Tombs and Trenches. And there's going to be two, one on Friday, March 13th, one on Saturday, March 14th. The March 13th is 530 to 645. Saturday is 11 to 1215. I'm not positive yet. I will probably be at the Friday one. So if any of you are in Atlanta and have a burning desire to meet me for any reason, can't imagine why. But if you do, I will most likely be on the Friday night tour. Uh, and Ashley is actually leading the tours. She is working very closely with the Utoy Cemetery Association. So if you want to come out and meet the Graveyard Girls, you want to come out and meet Ashley and I, uh, we will be at that one, trying to spread the word about preservation. And Utoy is a beautiful little cemetery. It really is. I'm actually looking forward to because I don't know that much about it. So I'm really looking forward to that. There's tons more events. If there are other things that you're interested in, churches, walking tours, almost any building that you can think of that you would want to get inside in Atlanta, including ones that literally you can't get into any other time of the year. So it's a great opportunity. Um, I wish I didn't have a day job because a lot of them are going on at noon on a Thursday and unfortunately I can't go to them, but it's a great opportunity. So I'm plugging it because I can. It's my podcast. Either way, hopefully you enjoyed learning a little bit about this. Um, like I said, it was an unexpected topic. I did enjoy it. Uh, interesting cemeteries, interesting stories, really compelling stuff. Uh, and personally, as a woman living in the United States, I'm grateful. As always, thank you for your ratings and reviews online. I have definitely seen a ton of positive feedback. You guys are really great. Um, thank you so much for all of you who reached out and told me how much you enjoyed my interviews with Emily. Talking about women in the cemetery industry she is right up there. So I am so pleased that you guys enjoyed those as much as I enjoyed doing those interviews. Um, please feel free to follow along on social media, on Facebook at Tomb with a View podcast and on Instagram at Tomb period with period a period view. Always you can find me on the web at www.tombwithaview.weebly.com. And lastly, if you want to email, get in touch for any other reason, Tune with a view podcast at gmail.com. Hope you have a wonderful week. Looking forward to more exciting stuff when I see you next. But for now, I'm Liz Clappen, and this is Tune with a View.